0: Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Thomas.
1: And I'm Shreya, and we're your hosts for Q Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q Talks, we are talking to Alex Murray, co founder of Flipbike, a new folding electric bike company based in Cambridge. Alex has a background in business development and together with his co-founder, Dave, who is a former Jaguar Land Rover engineer, combined their expertise to produce the Flit 16 bike. We are very much looking forward to speaking with him about the rise of
0: Flit Bike. Hi Alex. Hi guys. Thanks for coming on the show with us. Very Uh, happy to be here. I have to admit upfront, right away, I'm a massive bike geek. And I'm so looking forward to this podcast with you. Um, well, yeah, Cambridge, Cambridge is a great place for bike geeks, so very happy to do <laughs> it.
2: <laughs> maybe maybe to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. so i I don't have the kind of background that would obviously lend itself to to building bicycles. Um I did a history undergraduate degree at Oxford. Um, spent a couple of years working in London as a management consultant. Um, I'd learnt a bit of Mandarin along the way, and I decided to go and do a master's degree in Beijing in public policy at uh, Tsinghua University. Um, There I had a particular interest in transport policy, um, and I'd also... Over the years, become a bit of a bike addict myself. Um, I've uh, I, I do a lot of tour riding, so I, I've ridden across America, I've ridden across China, uh, ridden around Cuba, I've ridden across Europe. Um, so I, I I was essentially looking at a way of marrying these interests of cycling transport-related public policy, mm. but also a bit of technology. Um, so when I was in, in Beijing doing this master's degree, I met uh, an engineer, uh, a guy called Dave Henderson, uh, who was doing autom- automotive engineering at Tsinghua, mm-hmm. um, fluent Mandarin speaker, also really interested in electric vehicles and bikes and, and moving around cities in new ways. And we really just thought our, our interests collided in a, in a re- really great way and our. our Sort of backgrounds and expertise were also complementary, mm-hmm. so we thought we'd start working on something. Um, identified folding e-bikes as a particularly emerging category uh, for multimodal commuting and getting around the city, uh, and decided to work on that together. Very cool.
1: So, what exactly is uh, Flit Bike?
2: Yeah, so Flit is a it's now a Cambridge-based company. We decided we sort of identified Cambridge when we were based in Beijing as one of the best places in the world, really, to do. Um, to do anything related with bicycles and engineering and startups so we decided to move back here and uh, we're based in the north of cambridge at the future business center we develop Lightweight folding electric bikes, mainly for urban commuters. So think of people who are taking the train from Cambridge into London. You want to be able to cycle to the station, fold your bike up nice and small, have it out the way on the train so you don't annoy other commuters, unfold it at the other end, get to the office. And the electric assist allows you to have complete control over that journey so you can cycle in whatever clothes you want. And it just gives you complete flexibility uh, to get around. What, what, what inspired
0: you despite your love for bicycles? to go for the folding e-bike market, given that there are already a lot of e-bikes out there and there are a lot of folding bikes too.
2: Sure. Yeah. So there are definitely a lot of uh, folding bikes. Uh, folding bikes have been around since the First World War. They were developed for um, Italian soldiers, I think it was, to to, to carry them over the Alps. Um, and they're also used in the Second World War by some of the paratroopers. So folding bikes have been around for absolute ages. There are lots of really good designs out there. E-bikes have, have also been around for a long time, but the technology has changed Quite dramatically recently because of the developments in lithium-ion batteries mm-hmm. uh, the battery pack was always the the big problem because there had to be lead acid very very heavy um, which really limited the number of people who would actually use it you couldn't really get a useful range out of a lightweight e-bike uh, but now that lithium-ion batteries have become so good you can suddenly change the way you design e-bikes mm-hmm. um, these have been these These changes have been applied to folding bikes for a while, but generally they're retrofits. So you take an existing folding bike, uh, you slap a battery on, slap a motor on, uh, strengthen the frame at various points because it's got some different stresses going through it uh, and you have a bike, but it's not it's not really a great design. It hasn't been designed as a folding electric bike. It's been Mm -hmm. retrofitted. So we thought by taking a fresh approach, we could do something a bit better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we we think we've achieved that. So we've we've got the weight down to 14 kilograms. Typically folding e bikes weigh about 20 kilograms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also the folded size is much smaller. Um, And we've achieved that in a number of ways. For example, one of the main things we've done is we've integrated the battery inside the top tube of the bike. So we actually have a problem sometimes because people see it and they don't even realize it's an electric bike. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, that's, you know, that's got a bit of weight to it for a folding bike. But they don't realize that there's a whole electrical system built in there as well. Mm-hmm.
1: So we were talking earlier um, before this conversation about uh, Brompton as one of your biggest competitors, um, so it'd be interesting to see how you're differentiating yourselves from them, and what made you feel so confident to sort of take them on.
2: Sure. So uh, Brompton is actually a very good example of, of what I was just talking about with the with the integration. Um, Brompton uh, are hands down one of the best folding bike companies in the world. Uh, They're very compact. They have a great fold. They know exactly how to make that product, have been doing it for 40 years and have a very loyal following. However, when it came to doing an electric bike, they wanted to change as little as possible because they already have a, a sort of a winning formula for folding bikes. And what they've ended up doing is they have put a hub motor in the front wheel because to put it anywhere else would change the bike too much and they have configured the battery so that it, it clips to the front of the bike as a piece of luggage essentially um, and that has a couple of effects first of all when you fold down the Brompton electric you then have to carry a bike unclip the battery and carry them separately and the whole thing weighs 17 kilograms um, also by putting the motor in the, the front wheel that has some effects on the, the riding dynamics um, it's a it's a bit more complicated than this but the, the, the analogy I like to give is that when you have a motor in the rear wheel or, or down in the by the bottom bracket, it feels like when the motor is giving you assistance, it feels like someone's pushing you from behind. or you have a very strong tailwind, which is anyone who's been on a bike and has a tailwind will know that's a very nice feeling. <laughs> uh, with the motor in the front wheel, it can feel a bit like someone's grabbed you by the shirt front and is pulling you forward. It's a bit unnatural to have all that torque going through the, the front wheel. So these are a couple of the compromises they've made. Um, and we felt like, By starting from scratch, we could do something better.
1: And you're currently selling your bikes at a lower price than the Brompton e-bikes and similar on the market?
2: Yes. Uh, Well, it depends what you mean by similar on the market because there are various types of bikes out there. um, there Quite a range of prices. In general, you kind of get get what you pay for. The reason we're able to offer a discount at the moment is we're doing direct sales to consumers because we've just launched recently. So we recently had a Kickstarter campaign um, and we're off, able to offer a discount because it's uh, it's pre-sale. So we're, we're now beginning the manufacturing, but th- these are people who are reserving their, their bikes in advance. Um, and because we are not uh, selling through retailers, there's currently a discount because we don't have to pay the retailer margin. However, that won't be the case forever. Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Although there are some examples out there of some companies doing the direct selling Yes. business very successfully such as kenyan for example yep. which i know yes so have you already decided on the strategy going forward that
2: you definitely do not want to do the direct selling we're actually in the process of deciding this now um mm-hmm. there are a number of different ways to do it the, the most conventional way will be to sell through shops um and then you also have direct sales that particular chan- challenges around direct sales with uh, folding bikes because there tends to be a learning process about how to use the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're, one of the things we're trying to figure out now is if people receive this bike in a box on their doorstep, Are they happy to use online resources or the instructions given to them? Mm -hmm. Um, Or is it just intuitive enough that they can take it out of that box and just know how to use it and be completely fine with that? Mm -hmm. Um, Or do they need someone to show them how to use it? Mm -hmm. Um, If it's the latter case, then we either need to go through intermediaries like shops who provide that service, or we need some other way of teaching people to use the bike. Canyon have been great though, and they're really iconic in the bike industry for pioneering that direct sales model because mm-hmm. Canyon bikes can cost you know five thousand pounds. They can be really high-end road bikes, mm-hmm. um, but people are still comfortable buying that online, and Canyon sort of proved that that. Part of the market existed when other people didn't think it was possible mm-hmm. um, so th- that is possible uh, to do potentially if people are comfortable enough with it it also has a number of operational challenges so if people don't have a relationship with a bike shop where they mm-hmm. bought the bike from then they you need an, an alternative way to give good customer service mm-hmm. on m- repairs maintenance and so on mm-hmm. so um, yes direct se- selling does uh, save you save your margin on the upfront cost but there mm. are all sorts of other things going on mm-hmm. uh, that have to be taken into account mm-hmm. um and and net net often actually it, it doesn't end up being a better deal for the brand so um mm-hmm. sometimes people rush into direct sales without thinking about the whole picture um we're trying to be a bit more measured mm. mm-hmm. we realize that these bikes are are tools that people need for commuting so they mm-hmm. need to be reliable yes uh, they need to be convenient and um we don't feel that just giving people an upfront discount, but then not providing any service on the back end of that mm-hmm. is the right way to build build mm-hmm. this type of brand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned you went through crowdfunding um, to make this all happen so far. Could you talk to us a bit about the decision making process that you went through to decide to do the crowdfunding and what that process looked like?
2: Sure, so um, I'll just clarify first what I mean by crowdfunding because there are four different types of crowdfunding you can do. Um, The first is charitable giving. So this is, you know, your mate is going to run the marathon and you'd like to support them and you can donate online through a platform. Uh, the second is debt-based crowdfunding, where usually small businesses are trying to, to raise money to do some type of specific action. They can't get funding through alternative sources, so they they turn to the crowd in, instead. Um, so those are essentially loans by, by ordinary people to small businesses. You have equity crowdfunding, where people are investing um, money to get a small proportion of of equity in your business. So the most famous example of that at the minute, I think is BrewDog, who had this, I can't remember what it's called, called like Punk's Equity or something, uh, which lets people part own BrewDog and then they get discounts on beers and that that kind of thing. But as we're having people buy into the brand and and raising money on the open market without necessarily giving away a product. The fourth one is uh, product-based crowdfunding. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. So this is selling a product to people before manufacturing it. at a discounted price, so the advantage for the the buyer is they get um, they get it at a discounted price. But also, and this is very important to a lot of people. They get it first. Mm-hmm. So often, it's some kind of cool new product that isn't on the market, can't be gotten anywhere else. You're in that first group of people to get it, and this can also be important. You can talk directly to the people developing that product. Mm-hmm. So you might even be able to have a bit of feedback. Um, into the the final tweaks to the product and and be able to to shape it. So it's a really involved involved process. For the product developers, the advantage is you have a bunch of early buyers, which A, proves that there's demand for it. So it makes discussions with retailers and investors and so on a lot easier. But also it gives you the capital upfront to invest in the manufacturing costs because generally product-based crowdfunding is used for some kind of activity that is capital intensive. So this will either be setting up manufacturing for a physical product, or it might be shooting a movie where you have to, you know, you have to pay the actors and you have to rent the equipment and so on before you can show anyone the movie and, and make any money that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, it really helps young companies bring new products to market. um, By having that cash in advance, the customers are happy because they get something no one else can have at a discount. Um, And and it's it's really exciting for both sides because you get all that feedback to make the product the best product possible. So for us, we thought that was a very good fit for what we were trying to do. Um, It's not cheap setting up manufacturing to build a new bike. um, And this helped us to validate that what we were doing was something that people really wanted.
1: And do you have to guarantee a time frame for when you'll get it to the customers by? Uh,
2: you give a, you do give a time frame. Um, it's not, it, it's not generally seen as a uh, an absolute guarantee. The reason for that is manufacturing is, and we're in the Institute for manufacturing, so I know you you guys know this already. But uh, in manufacturing, there can be uncertainties. There can be some things you're testing. You know, often you need to invest. Uh, the money raised in the manufacturing tooling, there can be slight issues with that. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there are there are delays. Um, it depends on the, the project um, and the, the creator of the project. What we tried to do is we spent a year working with a, a manufacturer, a bicycle factory in Taiwan to prototype the bike, test it being manufactured, make sure we were as comfortable as possible with it before taking it through the crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are let's say a bit less scrupulous, will um, take what is essentially a concept um, and they don't allow this anymore. But in the early days, you could just put up 3D renders, um, say, here's a cool new product that we will build, raise loads of money, try to do the manufacturing, realize it doesn't work and then the money's all gone. Mm. Um, so that that's essentially the risk. Um, but the the whole process is much, much uh, it's much more responsible now, to mm. be honest. Uh, and uh, we in particular didn't want to Certainly didn't want to be in that position, so we put a lot of effort um, into testing all that that first.
0: Did you have any prior experience with
2: product-based crowdfunding? No, we didn't specifically. This is our first first one, um, but we took a lot of time to speak to as many people as possible who do, um, including people in the bike industry specifically. So there's actually an emerging cluster of UK-based startups, mostly in London, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, which are developing bikes. So this could could either be developing bikes themselves, and e-bikes are quite Popular in this, or it could be accessories for bikes, mm-hmm. um, and th- there are a range of them. A lot of them have been through it before, and uh, one of the great things about the community is, as long as you are not directly competing with someone, people are generally pretty happy to help out. Mm-hmm. We all have the same suppliers, uh, we all talk to the same distributors, and so on. So, um, you know, as startups, we try to pool our resources a bit and uh, and make sure we we have as much information as possible. So mm-hmm. it's, it's been really nice to be able to tap into those communities.
0: And it's probably fair to say that your crowdfunding initiative has been pretty successful. Was that a complete surprise or was that just the result of fantastic strategic planning?
2: Ah, (laughs) somewhere between the two, I think. Um, One thing worth mentioning is that uh, I think when people see crowdfunding campaigns, uh, generally they're a month long, so quite short and sharp. And people generally think that you've just come up with this idea, stuck it online, and then suddenly it's all taken off. Uh, In reality, usually there's anywhere between three and nine months of preparation that goes into a crowdfunding campaign for a one-month campaign um, that no one else sees. Um, So I I wouldn't say it was a complete surprise, because we we put a lot of work into that. um, And uh, we're very happy that it all paid off. but it did do, yeah, it did do quite well, and that that that's really important because that gives well, it gives us the manu- uh, the the confidence, as I said, that we are building something people want. It gives all of our supply chain partners the confidence that you know they're working with a company that is doing something that's going to be successful. Um, and later, for working with distributors or retailers or or whoever it happens to be, it gives gives them confidence as well. So yeah, a lot of it is about momentum. To be honest, you you build up a campaign, launch it um create that momentum and then it's all about carrying that that through the business mm-hmm.
1: so for hardware startups that are interested in going about doing product-based crowdfunding what would be your top tips to them uh
2: so the the first tip i, I think i've sort of mentioned already it's pre- preparation yeah really um so talk to as many people as you possibly can um and Set aside, I would say, set aside at least six months. If it's a, it's, a folding electric bike, is a, is a very complicated product. Um, we actually th- thought it would be a bit easier than it is, but it's definitely very complicated. Uh, so we took about nine months of preparation. Um, for a simpler product, it might only be three months. But definitely, I would I would allocate say six months to get your head around how it all works uh, and prepare for it. Um, because when you launch, it, it the the launch day itself needs to be a, a success. Usually the the you can tell if this project is going to be successful or not within the first 24 hours. Um, and if you haven't done the preparation, it really won't, won't be. The second tip is to appreciate that crowdfunding is its own little world. Um, and that, that has advantages and disadvantages. It's, it's kind of great because it's got its own little ecosystem of people who specialize in that kind of marketing and you know journalists who write about that space and people who launch products in that space, creators as they're often referred to, um, who are a very helpful community, um, very happy to, to give a hand. Often because they just love to see new stuff emerge, um, and that's true of the backers as well. You have a lot of serial backers who, who back all sorts of things. They seem to almost exclusively do their shopping through um, through crowdfunding because they always want you know the latest tech, and that can be a really great ecosystem. But only if you appreciate it's there and you're able to sort of to sort of uh, lean on it and and you know talk to the right people. Um, the disadvantages of of that are that because it's its own little world, um, you have to also realize that when you leave it, the big bad world is a bit different. Um, so it, it requires a bit of forward planning to think, okay, we've, we've done this successfully in crowdfunding, but then what are we gonna do later? Um, so yeah, that that's it, sort of appreci- appreciating that. Um, and then I would say the, the, the third tip is around um, the follow-up to crowdfunding. Once you do the crowdfunding, you need to be able to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to do all, to, to go through the steps, you need to be able to plan it really well. You need to be able to market it really well. You need to have a product that's that's awesome that people want, and then you need to be able to effectively deliver it. Um, and on this this third part, you sometimes see companies, and this is where crowdfunding gets a bad name. They put all of their effort into marketing um, and building the hype, and they've done the prep, and then they have to build something, and they they haven't prepared for that stage. So yeah, the preparation there you know, know who you're going to manufacture it with, have as many of those bugs ironed out. It's okay to have a couple of issues because you've, once you've done a successful crowdfund, you have a group of people who back your product and they're, they're going to, you know, help you to make the best product possible, but you need to, to do the preparation. So essentially it's all, it's all about preparation really. Mm. Um, and then maybe as a, a, a small fourth tip, it's, um, don't like plan any holidays or anything during the campaign it's going to probably be, be the most intense month of your life um, and it, it's pretty for uh, pretty pretty much 24 hours a day um if you're doing a big campaign you can have thousands of followers um, and backers who all have questions and if you have a small team of a few people you're mm. trying to answer emails from 5,000 people um, that's that's pretty intense mm. yeah so wow. yeah set aside set aside that month and, and don't have any other plans
0: mm now, you've already mentioned that this is one way of financing and maybe getting a startup off the ground. Are you also looking into other ways of financing split bikes?
2: Sure. So um, we've actually taken a mixed approach. Um, when we first started the company, um, Dave and I both put in the the founding capsule for mm-hmm. the, the company. So I, I used to work, as I said, in in London as a management consultant. So I had some modest savings. Dave used to work for Jaguar Land Rover and the TTP group here in Cambridge. So he also had some savings uh, and we pooled those, put them in, and that's, that's how we started the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had grant funding. So our first grant was from the Department for Transport. Mm-hmm. Um, these are generally match funded. So they will, uh, you define a project and they say, okay, we'll we'll fund, that one was 45%. So we'll fund 45% of this, you find the 55%. Um, so we were able to use our seed capital to do that. Once you've got a few of these grants, and we've also had grants from the the European Union and from uh, the Design Council, um, once you have these grants, it starts to give people a bit of confidence and that's when you can start talking to investors. Mm -hmm. So we raised a small investment round last year that helped to fund the manufacturing exploration that I I described earlier, Mm -hmm. and also to to fund some of the marketing and other activities around the crowdfunding campaign. Um, And then the crowdfunding campaign is uh, people always say the best form of investment you can have is from customers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and this is perhaps particularly true in Cambridge. You have a lot of deep tech or you know, hard science um, startups in Cambridge that can rely on on funding from grants and so on for years and years and years. And at some point, you need to have customers or someone else to want to buy your idea. So the sooner you can get that proof that someone else, apart from grant giving bodies and investors, is interested in your your company, the better. So. Crowdfunding allowed us to do that part. Mm-hmm. But but in general, it's been a, a mix of, of four, four different investment sources, our own money, investors, grants, and crowdfunding. Mm-hmm.
1: So what does the future look like for Flit? Once you produce the bikes that you're doing in Taiwan, which we'll get onto in a bit. Sure. Um, yeah, what does that future look like?
2: So it's gonna be a very busy six months, which I think I say every six months. <laughs> um, the next six months, uh, we are, well, yes, we're focusing on the, the manufacturing. Absolutely, that's our top priority. Uh, we're also starting to develop our next product, um, which is keeping the engineers busy. Uh, we're looking to expand the team to be able to, both the technical team and the commercial team, to be able to take on more projects. Um, but also, once we have start delivering these bikes, we need to have our operating model and our business model sorted out so we know what we're going to do Next year, the, the bike industry is very seasonal. So it's uh, essentially it's March through to sort of September, October. Depends on the weather each year, but, but generally that's the kind of season you have to to be selling bikes in the winter. Everyone sort of hunkers down and develops new stuff. Um, so we're, we're we're working over the winter on developing new products, and then we want to know come March exactly how we're going to be to be selling it, talking to customers, what what events we're going to be going to, and so on. Um, on top of that, we are we have a, a number of grants where applying for at the moment, Um, and we are also beginning to talk to investors for the next investment round, um, which is going to support a lot of these activities. We have a couple of really exciting ideas about how we can approach the business model in a way that's um, quite unusual in our our sector, um, because we've already talked about a few of the competitors. We're always looking for new ways to differentiate ourselves, and we think we have a couple of opportunities ahead of us that are not as easy for the competition to take advantage of. So we think, we think we're in a sort of unique position there.
0: Interesting. Mm.
1: Mysterious. <laughs> yeah, a
2: little bit mysterious. It's, it's going to go into the next investment pitch. So I won't, I won't mention too much just
0: yet. <laughs> one one particularly interesting topic for any kind of product based startup is the make or buy question. Mm-hmm. And in your case, you decided to uh, manufacture your frames in, in Taiwan. Can you tell us a little bit more about what prompted
2: that decision? Sure. So um, I make versus buy, I wouldn't put it as a dichotomy because with any complicated product, you're always going to be buying in components, Mm -hmm. but you want to identify what you're making Mm -hmm. and you don't want to go beyond your capacity, Mm -hmm. really. So uh, with with an e-bike or folding e-bike or actually any bicycle, um, it's very unlikely you're going to be making things like brake levers and pedals and so on. Those are always going to be bought in. Um, similarly with the electrical system of our bike, we uh, took a bit of a mixed mix approach there. actually. The electrical system, there's a lot that can go wrong so it tends to be best to leave that to the specialists. However, we did need a battery pack mm-hmm. that was customized for our bike. We looked at developing it ourselves, turned out to would be very complex, mm-hmm. which I don't think would surprise too many people, um, particularly around, there are a lot of safety regulations around lithium-ion batteries which, as, as there should be. So we ended up partnering there with uh, a battery manufacturing specialist in Taiwan, um, which is a subsidiary of Acer, so the um, mm-hmm. the computer and, and laptop and electronics manufacturer. Uh, so we knew that they were a top-tier supplier and that they, they do good work. And where we have focused most of our efforts, because the, en- the engineers on our team are primarily mechanical engineers, uh, they are pretty good on the electrical side as well, but primarily mechanical. We f- focused on the frame. Um, and the design, and by design I, I mean that in quite a wide sense. So design is everything from the aesthetics to the, the user interaction, mm-hmm. and also designing the the entire experience of buying the bike. There's mm. a, quite a lot that goes into it. So we decided to focus on that, um, and we knew that's where our strengths lie, and also where we that's where we saw the most opportunity around the themes of integration that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, rather than retrofitting things designing everything from scratch to be all integrated in. That's where we saw the greatest opportunity for differentiation at the product level rather than at the sort of business model level. So um, we we decided we needed to own that. We needed to design that ourselves. Um, the manufacturing part, you know, again, uh, it's a, it's a bit mixed. We work with a bike manufacturing partner mm-hmm. because they have a factory already, and it'd be quite expensive for us to set up a factory. so we we work with them, but we do all the design work um, and they are essentially working yeah to to our our designs and our specifications. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bit of a mix, and we felt that that was enough for us to handle as a small team of of four full-time employees mm-hmm. um, whilst also bringing the expertise we needed to make a really, really great product. Mm-hmm.
1: So we've talked quite a lot about your business strategy, which I think is very important. I also think it's important to talk about some of the behind the scenes that are slightly less obvious. So things like IP. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've had a look at your website and you explain the process quite uh, nicely about how you manufacture the bikes and the idea behind them and things. So how did you find the balance between being as open as you could during crowdfunding but also protecting yourselves and at what stages have you done that?
2: Sure. IP is always a very tricky Question um, and it's one that's much debated amongst startups. Um, so arguably, the, the IP system over the years has become better suited to larger companies, um, and IP has become a bit of a strategic tool, to be honest, um, for a lot of a lot of industries, like the pharmaceutical industry, or you see this as well in the electronics industry. So particularly smartphone makers are often buying up patent portfolios and then using them as weapons essentially mm-hmm. to block competitors and so on. Um, this is an indulgence I think you can have if you're a multi-billion dollar company um, with a, an IP department and an IP strategy. As a young startup, IP is a very expensive um, part of what you do. So we try to be quite focused with 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 how we approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've taken quite a lot of advice on this. Thankfully, there are always a lot of, I hope no IP lawyers are listening to this, but there are always a lot of IP lawyers at events around Cambridge who are happy to have a free chat with you over a coffee or a drink. And we, we, yeah, we've certainly talked to a few IP lawyers. So I think we have a fairly good understanding of what we want to do. Um, the So the, the first thing to do is understand how the IP system works. Um, for us, there are three main areas. One is patents, one is design registrations or registered designs, um, and the third is trademarks. Um, There are a number of other ones, unregistered designs, copyright, and so on, which may be relevant for other people. I'd encourage anyone listening to to go look into that themselves. Um, But for us, we wanted um, at least one patent that essentially covers how the bike works in theory mm. uh, so the principles behind how it folds and so on um, we also uh, registered a number of designs and designs generally just cover more aesthetic considerations so shapes and they can cover things like colors and textures as well i think but generally you're looking at shapes and, and, and physical designs of things um, and then third trademarks it's important to have a brand name that you're building. Building something behind that becomes recognisable, and that y- you can protect that. Um, trademarks and registered designs are relatively cheap; um, they're not, you know, inconsiderable, incon- con- but they they are relatively cheap. Patents much more expensive. Um, I mean, a patent to file a patent can cost between three and five thousand pounds. To take it through to maturity over its say twenty-year life cycle could cost well will cost you tens of thousands of pounds which is quite a, a big decision for a young young company to make um so I, first of all i would i would uh, take a look at it understand how the system works have those free coffees uh, decide if you really need it um and and then take the minimum amount of ip that covers your strategic bases um but don't leave yourself exposed to the enormous costs, which tend to accrue in years sort of two, three, four, five and, and, and beyond that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if that's quite answered your question specifically enough. What I would go back to though, is you, you did ask about being open. When we started, I think we realized what a lot of people come to realize, which is that you, you have an idea and you think it's a brilliant idea and you don't want to tell anyone about it because you think everyone's going to copy it. Mm-hmm. And most people don't care. <laughs> I genuinely don't care. Or you'll you'll tell them about it and they'll say, oh, that's nice. But then actually they've got a million other things going on in their life. And people aren't sort of lurking around corners waiting for a tiny company in Cambridge to come up with an idea that they can then steal and go go develop because they've got nothing else to do. Um, Generally, uh, you can put the idea out there at least a little bit. Um, Once you've got proper protections you're sort of aware of how the system works so this is things like using NDAs and so on Uh, so non-disclosure agreements Um, but you you need to be able to talk to people otherwise you don't know if your idea is just a terrible idea or not Um, and that that is a balance I think everyone everyone has to to find themselves take the advice on it do the research on it but um, I think in general people lean more towards the secrecy side um, which which can mean that you end up locked away in a room developing an idea for two or three years that turns out to be completely pointless. Um, and that, that is, there's also a risk associated with that. So um, I wouldn't just see the risk on the, you know, someone's going to steal my idea side. There's also a, a risk and arguably, arguably a bigger risk that your idea is not a good idea. Yeah. Um, and you have to be able to talk to people to, to answer that question. Mm.
0: No, that's very good advice it, it has been a fascinating tour de force of, of how to start up a, a product company and what an exciting product it is maybe a fun question to end the podcast how do you envision if you possibly can the e-bike market in 10 years 20 years time
2: Ah, Okay. Uh, so I, I said earlier that I was really interested in transport policy. So this may not be such a fun question for all of us. <laughs> um, so uh, a lot of it, to be honest, so, so the, the, te- the tech has developed quite a lot, um, as you said, and they're becoming wildly more popular. One of the most interesting things for me is the average age of an e-bike rider is dropping every year. Mm-hmm. So um, traditionally, e-bikes were pitched almost as a sort of a mobility product. Um, and they are great for people who have limitations on their riding. This could be anything from, um, you know, having a, a serious injury you're recovering from or whatever it happens to be. Uh, now e-bikes, because they're becoming so much smaller, lighter, uh, the designs are getting so much better. They're just becoming, seem to be a way to, to just get around the city effectively. Mm. Uh, on a small, device that doesn't take up a lot of space. Um, And I'm quite excited by what's going on in in places like um, the Netherlands, uh, or it's starting to happen in Belgium, Austria, Germany as well. Um, So when you say, what does it look like in 10 years? I actually think it probably looks, hopefully, like the Netherlands in 10 years, um, where e-bikes are now about half the market for new bikes sold um, they're a great way to encourage more people to get involved so you see this something that always i'm always very happy to see is parents cycling their kids to school um, in these kind of cargo bike mm-hmm. style things and families cycling together because e-bikes have essentially let everyone just balance out their their ability level um, however the caveat to that is That can only happen if you have the infrastructure and the policies and laws in place so that people feel safe doing that. Mm -hmm. There's no point getting everyone on bikes um, if they don't feel safe riding with their their kids on on the street. Um, And that's where we're not We're not there yet in the UK. Um, We're much further down that road in in parts of continental Europe. So uh, what I hope is that e-bikes now are showing the possibility of what can happen and that we have a political reaction to that to put in place the infrastructure and the policies so we can get more people riding and have more livable cities. Mm -hmm.
0: Now that's a fantastic vision to aspire to. Maybe because I'm such a bike geek, uh, in terms of product, how do you envision... A really cool e-bike looking in twenty years time.
2: What what can we look
0: forward to?
1: It looks like the flip bike.
2: <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. So this is uh, something I tried to steer the engineers away from talking about. If it, if it was if it was up to them, uh, it'd be it'd be like a flying e-bike with all sorts of things. Nice. Uh, that they're really interested in. Um I actually think. Uh, on a practical level, what you're likely to see um, that I think will will really change the experience most is because you now have a battery on the bike, suddenly you can just plug loads of stuff into it. Mm-hmm. Right? So sensors are pretty cheap. Um, and you'll start to see, I think, a lot of things that have been developed in other industries like the automotive industry or motorbikes and so on, start to be applied to e-bikes. So there are a lot of really exciting areas that I think will be developed around things like predictive maintenance. I mean, how cool would it be if... Your bike had a screen on it and it said to you, uh, your tires are a bit flat, mm-hmm. why don't you pump them up? Or your chain is wearing out, you should replace that because otherwise you're going to have to replace the whole transmission um, and your bike essentially takes care of itself. Because um, one thing I do see a lot, of well, because I'm also a bike geek really, uh, when I cycle around, you see a lot of people on poorly maintained bikes and mm. that's... That's often, I mean, you know, people have different interests. I'm I'm really interested in bikes, so I love to maintain my bike, but I appreciate that's not how everyone wants to spend their kind of weekend. So uh, I think it'd be really great if... if we had all that technology, which is helping people to just have a better experience on the bikes by things like, yeah, things like predictive maintenance. I think are going to come a long way in the next next few years. Very cool. Thank I'm you so much. Definitely
1: one that's guilty of poor maintenance <laughs> of my bike. Fine. As long as you're
2: riding a bike, it's good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Alex, for coming on the show with us today. If people want to find out a bit more about what FLIT do, where can they find you?
2: So the best place to look is on our website, www.flit.com. Bike, and we're available also on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram with the handle at flitbike. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us at hi at flit.bike. Perfect. Cool. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks guys.
1: It was great to get Alex's perspective about the rise of Flitbike. Um, in particular, I thought the crowdfunding angle was very interesting and something that um, startups would do well to think about quite seriously, and I quite appreciated Alex's tips about how to prepare for a crowdfunding round. I'd, I hadn't personally hadn't quite realised how much work goes into goes into it before launching, so I found that really interesting.
0: Mm, I completely agree, and also his reflections on openness versus protection mm. was particularly interesting to me. He said it's it's very important that you're reasonably open about your idea, not be naive about it. Uh, you can, you should still think about IP. But for a small startup, it can be a very expensive thing to do. So be mindful as as to what you consider important in the early stages.
1: Thanks very much again to Alex for joining us on Qtalks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have been working hard behind the scenes.
0: Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.